Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome along to a special edition of the Final Furlong Podcast. I'm Emmett Kennedy. We have talked about FOBTs and the fight against them and just how vile they are many times on the podcast. Kevin, Vanessa and I had a good long conversation about it when the ruling that the stakes were going to be reduced came in. I wanted to talk to one of the main men behind CFG campaign for fairer gambling for quite some time. Thankfully, we get to talk to one of them today, Matt Zarb-Cousin. Yourself and Derek Webb have done some fantastic work. And Matt, it is great to talk to you on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Emmett. Thanks very much. You have created this lobby group. You've crusaded against fixed odds betting terminals, FOBTs, as they're uh, known. But behind every campaign is a motivation. And, and your motivation is, to be perfectly frank about it, it's quite a dark story. Uh, why did you get involved in this campaign? Well, when I was 16, I went into a betting shop for the first time. And put, to put a bet on a football match, actually, I was underage, obviously. And they're very lax back then um, with age verification and all that. So I went in and... Uh, as my friend was at the counter putting a bet on, I put some money in the machine and uh, realised that it was obviously very rapid play. And you know, I won on my first go, and so oh, this, you know, this is something that I can sort of get into. Whereas, obviously, you put a bet on a football match and it's 90 minutes, and you wait for the conclusion of the result. This was obviously before betting play as well. Uh, the the rapid gratification that you're getting from fixed odds betting terminals and the engaging content and you know the illusion of control and all the structural characteristics of the product I just became addicted to it so so quickly and uh, had a, a few big wins uh, in the first few weeks and obviously when you have those early big wins which is what roulette can give you uh, in the short term obviously no one wins in the long term that then you can sort of delude yourself into believing that if you're ever losing money, you can win it all back. And obviously the nature of gambling addiction is it, it rewires your reward circuitry in your brain. And uh, some products are obviously more addictive and more adept. And look, I mean, over a period of four years, I got into a huge amount of debt. Um, I lost in more than 20,000 uh, maxed out overdrafts, student loans. So I ended up scraping into university, and uh, then I obviously had access to to overdrafts, and I had a job in a call centre when I was in sixth form, and all the money I earned in that was going into the machines, and everything fell by the wayside. Um, so uh, yeah, I just became so so fixated on on that product, that one product, and really, you know, when. At the time, I felt like, uh, you know, it must be an abnormality. Um, it must be, you know, 
unusual for someone to get addicted. How do you get addicted to gambling? How is that possible? How do you get it? it must be a fault with you. And then I, thankfully, after four years, uh, ended up getting treatment, uh, have, having uh, my parents had intervened when I threatened to commit suicide and um, I was in a very, very bad way. I couldn't get any access to any money. Just on that, Matt, and your parents making that crucial intervention, at what point did they realize that something that could be seen as a, as a casual, you know, fun thing to do had actually become very, very serious? And, and at what point had you reached that incredibly dark place and that tragic decision that you were going to take your own life? So I, I was working at... Um, for PowerGen, which is what Eon used to be, um, in a call centre in Rayleigh, and I was earning decent money. Well, my parents, I could borrow some money from them. And this was about three or four months uh, after I started gambling. And then they obviously realised, okay, he's got a bit of a problem here, or we, you know, and they, I, I suppose, you know, it's very poorly understood addiction, and it certainly was back in 2006. And I think that they um, probably thought, oh, you know, is either a phase or learning curve or whatever um but by then i think i was addicted i just didn't want them to know the extent of it or didn't want to really admit that to myself to be honest um so i just carried on really just uh you know carried on gambling and uh my behavior didn't change it just got worse and over the the years and as the years progressed got to the point where i actually um sold all my possessions all my um like xbox games and whatever everything i had that i could sell on ebay i sold it to fund the addiction or to fund my loss cover my losses um all the money that i earned from that job went into the machines uh as, as i said before when i went to when i went off to university with a full-blown gambling addiction my parents i don't think they knew how bad it was uh but then it was in um, it was in 2010 where I uh, I, I sort of I said to them that I, I've, lo- I've lost all the money I have access to. Um, I'm on course to completely flunk my degree. Uh, I have because of because of the addiction. I was in the betting shop pretty much every day. I've lost all the money I have access to. I can't you know I can't be here anymore and. And they they thought they they thought that meant I was going to drop out of university. And then I said I'm going to go and throw myself off the building that I was my accommodation was in. So obviously uh, this was when I was in Birmingham, and my parents live in Essex. So obviously they had, they then drove up to Birmingham and had me on the phone the whole time. And uh, thankfully, uh, you know nothing nothing happened, um, and I was able to get. Uh, get treatment after that and I went home for a period and then returned to finish my degree when I was still you know it took about six months for me to stop completely so it's so I know how difficult it is for people and you know if you have a product like this it's not it's not making the money from the casual gambler it's making you know, the health survey puts it 43% of people that use them have gambling problems and then they're contributing the vast, vast majority of the gross yield. You know, this is a product that was, thankfully, I can use the past tense now, was 
extracting, uh, creating problematic gamblers and extracting as much as it possibly could from them. And then those players, they would lose because they would play to extinction, which is an industry term, which is quite harrowing, but that's what they call it, play to extinction. Just to, and just to clarify that, that, that obviously then has a very dark connotation. Yeah, it does, definitely. And uh, particularly when we know that there is a link between this form of gambling and uh, uh, and people taking their own lives. And I think uh, what, what I think they mean by a play to extinction is play till all of their money is gone and all the money they have access to is gone. And at that point, you need to get new players. And this is why they have such a high turnover of customers. That's why they were constantly pushing the free bets, constantly pushing people from over-the-counter betting onto the machines, running tournaments and all that stuff. It was because they needed a new stream of players at all times. They couldn't just keep the, the customer base you know, for 20, 30 years. Um, that wasn't the business model. So you had two incompatible business models, really. You had machine players who would have you know, a, a player lifetime of a few years maximum. And you had the over-the-counter bettors who were there for, well, in the past would have been there for decades, you know, and it would have, a lot of their core business would have come from people betting on racing and sports. And I remember when I first went into the shops in 16, uh, in 2006, when I was 16, there's a, the guy, there was, there was a, a dozen or so guys in there watching the racing and watching the dogs every day, but they weren't getting into trouble. And then over the months and the years, they all started to ebb away. And they started to ebb away because they were doing all their money on the machines. And they'd done all their money on the machines and they'd done it and they'd said, I'm not doing that again. And then they would go into treatment or whatever and they self-exclude or whatever it is. But they, but, but they were losing their customers because of very um, short-termist uh, approach. And, and those customers have not, have not come back and they'll take a while to come back. You know, it's really what they have to do now, I think, is when the new customers come into the shop, because no one goes into a betting shop for the first time, as I didn't, to bet on the machines. They go in to bet on racing or sports. And they just have to keep those customers over the counter. And they can survive doing that. They did for decades. Um, but obviously, you know, they, they have to reorientate their business model. They can't keep opening six or seven shops on a high street. That's not going to be... This is why they located to the high street, by the way, because they needed the high footfall. They needed lots of new customers all the time. And that, and that's what's led to the clustering. And that's incidentally what's actually pissed a lot of people off, um, people who don't even gamble. There is also a, a link that's been done by Channel 4 Dispatches and the BBC have done documentaries on it as well. I'm pretty sure uh, the paper that you contributed to, The Guardian, have, um, have tackled this as well. And it's looking at the areas where betting shops have opened the most, the, the, the areas that they have targeted. And there's no way of putting it other than they are vulnerable neighborhoods. And yeah. And that's where the, the FOBTs were then being installed. But for the vast majority of, of our listeners, what some people will relate to the addiction of what you've said. And, yeah. and you've described that eloquently. What is it specifically about FOBTs? Why is it that it's such an addictive form of betting? I think it's, it's multiple factors. Um, so they, well, they brought these machines in, in, in 1999 they weren't very successful because they didn't have roulette on. And then they put roulette on in 2001. Roulette is a game that has been refined over 
many centuries to be as addictive and compelling and engaging as possible. And, you know, it's, it's as I said before, it's never been, it's never designed to be played at three spins a minute where on a touchscreen with um, lights and sounds uh, in an accessible premises. That the, all of these factors are important. Uh, and they're important because you're right. It's the adrenaline rush you get from winning. It's the adrenaline rush you get from uh, from you know chasing your losses. The anticipation. The anticipation is a big fat factor in it. Uh, the twenty seconds that between each spin. Obviously, you're looking at you know the ball going around the wheel, and you know it's just, uh, it's incredibly engaging, and um, and you can have that hit three times a minute. And look, I think there's times when you obviously remember, um, I don't know, I don't know how to best describe it, but if, if, if you walk past the betting shop and, and you're addicted, you get that feeling and it kind of creeps up on you. And, it, and, and when you go through therapy, they, they tell you it's the addiction talking to you and you just have to tell it to shut up. Um, but the addiction speaks to you very loudly and tells you, go in, just have 20 quid, Every, you know, just see how you get on with that and then don't do any more. And obviously you go in and because they're so, they're everywhere, so accessible, you know, that's it. You're, you might have just popped out for a, a newspaper and some bread and you do the first 20 and then, uh, you know, then you're chasing that. And then before you know it, you never set out to go out and gamble, but you've, you, you've, you've cleaned your bank account out. So uh, the times that happened to me were uh, countless, really, to be honest. Um and I just think, I just think that there is a very unique characteristic of gambling addiction, where you feel like um, it's the only addiction where you can convince yourself that carrying on doing the thing you're addicted to will solve all the problems that the addiction has caused, because you can. And what I mean by that is you can. You convince yourself you can win all the money back and everything will be all right. And because you've, even though it's like statistically uh, highly, highly unlikely that you'll win money back in the long run playing roulette in, in the long term, you, you convince yourself because you've done that before, because you've won before, you can do it again. And if you, even if you only win a few hundred quid back, it will be better than nothing and that's how you rationalize it to yourself but the reality is you're addicted to engaging with the product and that is um as i said before because of all these different characteristics that i think work um work in conjunction with one another before you went to your parents and you told them that the, the money that you had access to you were talking about uh, the the job that you had at the time was was paying reasonably well that's what made them suspicious and you had to go for a loan yeah. Or at least ask them for access to money. How were you living? Like before you went to that, how were you feeding yourself? How were like mentally each day when you were waking up? Had it just consumed your mind? And also just from the point of view of nutrition and looking after yourself, had yeah. all of that gone to one side and it was all about getting your fix? Yeah, I look like shit. I look like a drug addict, very much so. Um, and that's what it's like. It's like being addicted to a drug. And uh, yeah, nutrition went by the wayside. Everything went by the wayside. I became very reclusive and couldn't really derive any enjoyment out of anything else. And I think that is a real social inhibitor because if you... Uh, when you... When you 
when you bond with people, you do so over doing specific things and activities and you, you share in that enjoyment in things. So I just didn't enjoy anything. I just wanted to be in front of the roulette machine. And that was my, that was all I cared about. That was all I wanted to do. Um, I remember when I went to Reading Festival once, I actually walked out of the festival uh, to go to the bookies. I mean, that's like how bad it got. You know, all my friends were there and, you know, having a great time. And I just couldn't relate to to any of any of that at all. Um, so, yeah, when you ask if it consumed me, definitely. And, and that's what it can do. And it, it's so quick. It's so quick how it gets a hold of you. I think you paint mm. a, a very, very dark picture. Before we, we move on to to discussing uh, Campaign for Fair Gambling, I wanted to take you back to that that moment when you called your parents and you made that all-important phone call. And I say that because, unfortunately, suicide is an epidemic in Ireland. It's an epidemic in London, in, in the United Kingdom as a whole. It's something that we try to raise awareness about as much as we possibly can. And some people just don't feel as though they can ask for help, which is incredibly sad. But thank God you made that call. You were going to do it, but there was a part of you that didn't want to give up, which is why you made that call and it's why you stayed on the phone and and thankfully your, your parents got to you. But in that moment, Matt, was that the end? Could you see no other way out? Uh, yes, I, I just felt totally... Um, uh, without agency I, I, I didn't have any I didn't feel like I could I was not in control anymore and I was not I, 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 yeah I'd lost control of myself it was a uh, very scary um, and the, the self-loathing and the lows of if you're a gambling addict you know you take the wins really really well and you take the losses really really badly and the lows and the you know the the depression, uh, and I don't use that word lightly, the severe depression that follows that is coupled with, you know, the fact that uh, your ability to make decisions is inhibited by the addiction. You've become, you become more impulsive because you're addicted to gambling. It's, it, it does work that way around as well. You know, this is a very dangerous mix. There are so many different voices and there are so many different things. You mentioned looking like you were a drug addict but the fact that you weren't looking after yourself because you didn't have the money you were funding your habit drug addiction addiction to painkillers addiction to alcohol were a funny breed the human mind can get addicted to the strangest of things and mm. and sometimes there is no end in sight and thankfully there was for you thankfully you were able to pull yourself away from it when your parents got to you just paint that picture for me i know it's a very very sensitive thing to discuss but because it's such a widespread thing in all facets of life anything that we can do that highlights how the mind feels during suicide or an attempt on it i think the statistic is 97 percent of people who survive are incredibly grateful that they did it's a vast majority of people realize that it is a long-term solution to a short-term problem so when your parents came to your aid and the best people in the world to do that. What was your reaction? Yeah, I had to um, face up to where where the, the addiction had got me and where it put me. And 
face up to the fact that I'd let, I'd, you know, felt I'd let my parents down. I felt I'd let, you know, I'd not done everything I could have done. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was pretty inconsolable. And, um, and it's guilt as well. Uh, that's the fear, that's the overriding feeling. I think a lot of people who are addicted feel that as well. Like they feel they feel guilty, not just with themselves, but you know, because they feel like they've let everyone else down. And and yeah, there were moments where you know I just had to kind of face up, not been completely honest, and um, I didn't really understand how I'd done what I'd done and. Uh, why I'd done it and that was difficult it's difficult to convey if I can't explain it even to myself then it was difficult to explain it to them so you automatically default back to oh you know you just made a mug bet and you're an idiot and and yeah obviously the the symptoms of the addiction are you do tend to make mug bets and you do tend to bet uh, irrationally of course but uh, that's not you're not making those decisions rationally you're well you're making them because you're addicted and you're being controlled by an addiction and um that's something that i i didn't really fully comprehend or understand until a while after uh and once i understand understood it in those terms then i was able to reconcile with myself with them and and, and kind of move on from it one of the phrases you used is is chasing your losses everybody knows that phrase and everybody has mm. been there you know if you're at the racetrack and uh racetrack i'm sounding very american i'm spending too much time with peter <laughs> t fornital if you're at the race course uh or if you're in a betting shop you're in the pub with your friends and you've had a bet and the horse gets beaten the short head there is that temptation to go and and place a bet on another horse or to place a bet on something else to try and get it back but that's exactly what you're doing you're, you're chasing your losses and, and I've been there from my early 20s until my mother sat me down and, and had a, a very good conversation with me about her experience in, in the betting shop and, and seeing what people had done and make sure that her son didn't go down that route thank god that I have a strong person like that there to guide me how are you now you sound great and you speak eloquently about this but how are you physically and mentally now matt um i'm much better now uh yeah much much better i feel like i did when i was before i was addicted uh although i do still sometimes get a temptation to put a bet on but i think that's more just the society we live in and the fact that it's so marketed so heavily and there's so many opportunities to gamble and you know, I don't think that's because I'm addicted. I think, I think I, I don't do it for that reason. Obviously, I don't want to, you know, take any risks and uh, get on some kind of slippery slope. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely fine. I, I, you know, I've paid my I paid my debts off a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. So yeah, my life's in a, a much better place, obviously. And I was very fortunate to have. Uh, been involved in the the campaign against fixed odds betting terminals as well. And in terms of betting, was it just FOPTIs or were there other things that you would get involved in? Was it was it just about the fixed odds betting terminals for you? Yeah, so I used to bet on. I used to have like football accumulators and uh, I used to put football bets on. Um, but I wasn't. I wouldn't say that was a problem because I didn't like clear out my bank account 
doing football bets. Yeah. Never happened. You were and, having fun. Uh, yeah. And I, and I used to have, I used to, you know, buy a lottery ticket or whatever, might buy a scratch card every now and again. But the problem was with the machines, you know, and this is why I think it's so important that we get good data on what gambling, problematic gamblers, what their primary mode of gambling is and how much they've lost on each product. Because, you know, the bookmakers used to trot out this line about how problem gamblers gamble on several products. Well, yes, that's true. But how much money are they losing on each product? Uh, which product is inducing or exacerbating the problem? Um, tends to be one, tends to be one particular form of gambling that people get have a serious problem with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is uh, like fixed odds betting terminals, you know, more money was lost by problem gamblers on these machines than several leading gambling activities combined. And that was, you know, so comprehensively and conclusively the most harmful form of gambling. I think from your own perspective, the fact that you were able to recognize that you had an addiction and I'm sorry for your parents, if you don't mind me saying, because the fright they must have got. Uh, oh, yeah. And they they must have had some panic trying to get to you in, in Birmingham, going from, from Essex and, and to keep you on the phone. But the important thing is that you reached out and, and you realized, and I'll, I'll say something personal here now. I was introduced to addiction at a very, very young age. Uh, my father was a raging alcoholic. He was a special advisor in, in politics. No doubt about it. He was a genius at that. He was a very, very talented individual. He was a horrible husband and, and a horrible father. He never faced up to his uh, alcohol addiction. He never apologized for what he did. He put my mother and I through hell. We didn't have any money. He manipulated the, the legal system through his political influence. And uh, it killed him in the end. He died of cancer. But as an only child who was put through what I was put through, I, I, I didn't have any sympathy for him. You did face up to it and you have turned your life around incredibly. And for, for the people that don't, I'm sorry for them. I, I really am. Uh, and I can empathize. But I have so much admiration that you have turned your life around very successfully as well, by the way. Um, when you were at your absolute lowest ebb. And I also have incredible admiration and, and remarkable respect, the highest respect that I can give, that you would talk so openly about this because everybody knows someone who is going through alcohol, drug addiction, gambling addiction, and you speaking out about this is incredibly important. Uh, and you're helping countless people. To say that, you're helping even more with your campaign, Campaign for Fairer Gambling. You teamed up with Derek Webb. Derek is a former professional poker player, and interestingly, he made uh, a multi-million pound fortune as a casino game inventor. How did the two of you meet, and when did you decide that you were going to try and, and tackle Fobties? So I, I, I appeared on Dispatches in 2012, uh, which was um, a Michael Crick program on, it was called Britain's High Street Gamble. And uh, it had, uh, basically the focus of it was fixed us betting terminals. And I, and I helped them with that program and uh, uh, appeared on it. And I did all that sort of voluntarily because I, I just, you know, knew someone that was involved. And, um, and from that, Derek contacted me and we... 
uh, had a chat about what he wanted to do and what he was trying to do. And you know, he had a, uh, an issue with these machines and said these don't, you know, don't belong in betting shops. These are a very hard, addictive form of gambling and uh, people being harmed by them. And, uh, and, and I said, I know all about that. And, uh, and we, we got talking and, and I, I'd worked in, in Parliament for a couple of MPs. Uh, before that, I'd interned for a couple and worked part-time for the Shadow Justice Minister. Um, so I had some idea about politics and how to affect change. And, and I said, you know, if you want me to work on this i would love to so you know if we could work together that'd be great and I, we started um september 2012 and launched the stop the fobt's campaign in february 2013 and obviously the government were reviewing stakes and prizes or they were supposed to every few years so we thought we had something to build towards um and yeah that's basically how it started and uh uh, yeah, I mean, it was a steep learning curve for me. Um, I learned a huge amount, but I found as well that, um, you know, once we'd made that initial breakthrough and it was via a journalist I'd known in my previous role working for the Shadow Justice Minister, um, and it was related to a story about... Um, so the DCMS Select Committee recommended that the government lift the cap of four properties per shop uh, and uh, Philip Davis sat on that commit um, select committee he's a conservative MP for Shipley and he was very influential in um, in making that recommendation and but he hadn't declared uh, that he had been taken to the races by Ladbrokes he'd been given lots of hospitality and benefits and all that stuff so we did a, a story on that and Philip Davis ended up having to apologize to the house and from that, Randeep Ramesh, who's the journalist I was referring to earlier, he was interested then in what these machines were, what they did. We managed to get a Guardian front page in shortly after. So uh, around the time of launching this Stop the FOBT's campaign, actually, in sort of February 2013. And that mapped out all of the money that was lost in every single constituency. It elicited responses from dozens of MPs. Uh, immediately, you look at the figures that are associated with these machines and the losses and the scale of it and where they're located, as you mentioned before, and you know, how long this has been going on for and the proportion of people that are addicted. And, you know, we, we, called, we called them the crack cocaine of gambling because we wanted people to understand that uh, is uh, some products are more addictive than others. And there is, I think that one of the challenges, the public policy challenges of the last few years has been winning that argument about the product. And I think, you know, there was a, there was a kind of intellectual paradigm that dominated for a long time that, oh, if you're a gambling addict, you're a gambling addict. But, you know, you gamble on anything. It won't make any difference if you restrict products. And, and that that's just... The evidence shows that that's untrue. Uh, you might, if you if you're betting on racing or sports, you might do so for for many years without a problem, and you might go onto these machines, and then you might develop a problem. And I'm sure people listening to the podcast, as I do, and I'm sure you do as well, maybe know people that that has happened to. And so the the, pro, the product influences the style of gambling, and it was winning that kind of public policy argument. And and you know the crack cocaine of gambling label that we gave them 
that that fits that it, it helps make that argument um and this really caught fire and uh and then we sort of then it was fed into our media operation where we, we were going into local newspapers and placing stories there about how much was lost in a specific area, targeting MPs, building a support base in Parliament. And then Newham Council submitted a proposal under the Sustainable Communities Act calling for a reduction to £2 a spin, and the 93 councils supported that. And uh, the local government association entered into negotiations with government to come to an agreement, and then they agreed on a gambling review. And it was from that gambling review that we we, we got the the government decision, and, uh, and and they decided that they would enact our, our precise objective. And then, as you mentioned in the intro, they did want to delay it to 2020, but we we managed to get it enacted in April 2019. So that was the the home straight. I was genuinely shocked that that was going to be delayed. It was just it was such a common sense thing, and it was such a good news story that this was being brought in. And credit to a lot of the major media outlets who were covering the story so extensively, I could not believe the audacity that they were then going to kick it down the road. Um, and, and thankfully, they, they didn't. The thing is, though, you're tackling one of the biggest industries in the UK and Ireland. And you're coming after a product that is very, very profitable and very, very valuable for them. And it's not exactly a costly endeavor for them. You're not having to pay odds compilers. You're not having to make decisions about the person that you're... You just have a machine and it yeah. just is a license to print money. So you're taking on one of the most powerful industries. That obviously has problems. And they weren't going to sit down and take it quietly what was the the worst thing that you yourself faced um well i th i think it was just very important to for, for me it was the, the real challenge was overcoming the uh the, the what i call the gambling establishment which which comprised of the the responsible gambling trust which was chaired by the same guy who chaired the Association of British Bookmakers, the trade body. They had a huge amount of um, resources at their disposal, obviously. And they had public affairs companies and each operator had a public affairs team and a communications team. And, and you know, we were really, we were outnumbered quite significantly. Um, but we just had to really fight our own uh, campaign without... In, in sort of parallel to all of that and and we knew that the route to win was getting the press and the media on side and you know doing so by placing stories and 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 then as a result getting the public on side and parliament's accountable to the public you know parliament if mps want to do something because it, you know it's politically impossible for them not to then they'll do it and uh that's eventually what happened, and and after you know, a number of a number of years, we had we had had stories from so many different angles in in the papers. We had one about money laundering. So you can imagine, right? If you have a machine that you can access on any high street, and it's primarily in deprived areas, and you can go in and put any amount of cash in, everyone knows if you've ever played roulette, you could bet forty eight pound on red, forty eight pound on black, and four pound on zero. If you put five hundred pound in, 
cleaning all of that costs 20 quid you go to the counter you get the the money from behind the counter and you get a receipt and then you've legitimized that money you can just say if you've ever stopped if you ever stopped by police I've, I've won at the bookies and uh, and that was happening and that was happening on quite an industrial scale and we we managed to to show that that was happening and uh, and then there was obviously the crime associated with these machines you had a murder in a betting shop of a lone worker someone who was um, playing on a fixed odds betting terminal you had a serious sexual assault in a shop in Leicester um, someone who had lost money on these machines uh, it would created a culture in the betting industry of loan working and staff feeling um unsafe and uh, when you say that Matt, what were you what you're saying is that there's just there's one person working in a betting shop themselves responsible for the entire running of the shop and because of that one person tragically was killed and another person was sexually assaulted which is just horrific yeah exactly and and look i think I don't think that they would have operated a policy of loan working if the majority of their gross yield was coming over the counter. I think the machines have the the, the move. Obviously, sixty percent of the gross gambling yield is coming from from machines. You know, loan working in an, on an economic level kind of makes sense on a commercial level. Um, but you know that it, that should never have been the case. They should never betting betting shops should be licensed to be betting shops, which is taking bets. And this these are gaming machines, obviously a very different form of gambling. And uh, yeah, I mean that there were so many different problems that these machines were causing that weren't just about gambling addiction. And I touched on one of them earlier, which was the way that they changed the the business model of betting shops and. As a result of that, they start they started then to restrict bets over the counter. They didn't really want to take the risk of taking bets. They wanted just the guaranteed money. As you said, uh, you know, if you have a machine in a betting shop, it's going to give you fifteen hundred pounds profit a week. That was the the figure, uh, and that's guaranteed. And that so if you have four machines, it will be uh, six grand a shop every week. And they'd much rather that it's a guarantee. It's you know it's fixed. It's guaranteed. And um, is that the actual fig- standard figure, Matt? Six thousand pounds per week if you have four of those in your shop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and every shop had four. And uh, uh, yeah, and obviously, as you said, the running costs are very low. The overheads for the machines are very low. Um, and as it, and they were cutting jobs in the betting industry. They, I think in the period I looked at from 2009 to 2012, the number of shops had actually gone up, but the number of people employed had gone down by about 10%, but like 6,000 jobs were cut. So you look at, so then, they, then, they, then off the back of that, you can make an economic argument. And then the fact that, you know, these, these are effectively extracting a lot, a huge amount of, of money from, it's a very extractive effect, sort of parasitic almost, you know, and uh, uh, and that's obviously another powerful argument to make. And local authorities hate that because it actually contributes to the decline of the high street. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was just so much that we could we could say off, you know, extrapolated from this one product and what it was causing. And uh, and thankfully, you know, Tracy Crouch, who's the gambling minister, who who made a decision, 
when she, when she was a backbencher in the early days of the campaign between 2013 and 2015, she, she became aware of the issue and the issue was quite a prominent one in her constituency. And obviously she became the gambling minister after 2015 and and then it just sort of became about you know, she had she was willing to listen to the evidence which as a campaigner that's all you can really ask for and like genuinely listen to the evidence and and review this and when they'd made the decision the government she came under a lot of pressure from the treasury to delay it to 2020 and that and that for me i think was a lot of that was down to bookmaker lobbying um particularly uh with a particular kind of scaremongering report from kpmg which has since been discredited saying that they would have to close four and a half thousand betting shops which i you know it's not going to be any anywhere near that um so i think that the treasury felt felt that that was the right thing to do to delay it but then obviously we we ended up putting enough pressure on them um and mps like carolyn harris who uh, chairs the all-party group which was on fixed odds betting terminals now on gambling related harm uh, she was obviously instrumental in that and driving that in parliament so one, one of the quotes that, that you said and this is why i was talking about brexit at the top of the show and, and look inevitably we can't not talk about politics because ultimately they are the ones who have the the power to enforce all of this but whatever your view on brexit is it led to theresa may um, who has obviously since had to resign, and uh, there's the whole cluster, insert colourful language, that surrounds that. But you were quoted as saying that you would, it was your view that Theresa May would be more of a social conservative, less inclined to listen to the industry that curbs properties, and that would be one of the positives of Brexit. Is that how you think it played out, that, that Theresa May, for all that we can scoff and say, well, actually, she did feck all in her in her three years, she may very well have contributed to the end of, or at least the restrictions placed on properties? They have two very different leaders, Cameron and May, and uh, I think without that change of leadership and without that change of um uh, hierarchy at the Conservative Party, then I don't think that Tracy would have got been able to to, to get the review through. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think she's definitely a different type of Prime Minister, and, and I think she would have trusted to, um, Tracy to carry out the review. And uh, if she made a recommendation based on the evidence, then she would enact it. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that she was as pro unashamedly kind of pro-business libertarian that um, that Cameron and Osborne were. There's several pieces that have been written about you and, um, and about Derek and the incredible work that you've done. One is in the Financial Times who quote a senior betting executive uh, who did not want to be named. And the comment that they made about you was, can you think of any media campaign that has had as much of an impact uh, they have done an amazing job however not everybody and, and I, I, that was definitely begrudging respect being sent in your direction but not everybody in the betting industry was was too pleased with you uh, and that meant that there was an attempt to blacken your name there were mm. certain things said on social media there were certain things leaked to the media that simply weren't true or at the very least were highly insulting you're someone who's come through an awful lot and you're clearly a, a strong person 
But when you were going on social media or when you were getting a phone call from a journalist and this these kind of accusations were being leveled against you, the accusation essentially being that the only reason you were doing this is that you were lobby, lobbying for the casino industry. Um, you took a case against this and uh, you can tell us yourself actually in, in, in your own words how that went. Right, yeah. So uh, they tried, because of Derek's background, uh, they tried to make out that he was doing this for commercial reasons, but he's retired. He's sold all of his assets. So, you know, there's no, yeah, he's got enough money as well. Like, and uh, he, he thinks he's doing this because it's the right thing to do. And uh, and it's an area of expertise that he has and he feels like he could make an impact. And uh, anyway, I was on a Channel 4 News debate in um, Brighton from, where well, I was actually from, I was actually down the line from Brighton while I was at Labour conference and this was in September 2017 while the gambling review was still going on and uh, and I was up against the chief executive of the Association of British Bookmakers Malcolm George and towards the end of the debate um, he said that I was deliberately misleading Channel 4 viewers because I was funded by the casino industry and I didn't have time to respond and I was like what <laughs> and uh, uh, and obviously the meaning of that and what it implies is that I'm a lobbyist for the casino industry. And uh, anyway, I took uh, legal action and asked for an apology and they decided they wanted to fight it. So it took about 18 months from then. Uh, but yes, that was one of the things that they tried to get cut through with the idea that Derek was doing this for commercial reasons. And I was, a lobbyist for the casino industry and it's just obviously completely ludicrous and you know i was campaigning effectively against these machines before i even met derek i was doing so when i appeared on dispatches before i met derek you know my own personal experience related to them is motivation enough i'm not you know i think one of the one of the keys to campaigning is you have to build coalitions and we if, if someone shared our objective any organization we would work with them, you know. I wouldn't, in any in any normal circumstances, I wouldn't work with uh, Care, for example, which is a very you know Christian uh, conservative organisation. Uh, but they they had access to bishops in, in the House of Lords, and we wanted to work with them, and we wanted to build as broad a coalition as possible. And look, I mean, uh, if if the casino industry agrees with a two pound cap, if the arcade and amusement industry agrees with a two pound cap if the bingo association agrees with it if whoever uh, agrees with it then you know you want to build as broad a coalition as you can and uh, uh, they other sectors are entitled to make their own commercial case their own commercial arguments but but that's not the reason that the government made the decision the re reason the government made the decision was because of the the harm this product was causing and I think that, you know, that's a crucial distinction to make. And, and the fact that that case was made and the public was made aware of that. Uh, uh, the idea that any sector would benefit from this stake reduction uh, is, I don't think, proven at all, to be honest. Uh, you know, the, the, the gross yield from fixed loss betting terminals went up exponentially year on year but the, the gross yield from other sectors didn't go down it didn't come from other sectors in the first place so it can't go back there it was creating new gamblers new f property addicts from 
people coming into the shop, as I said before, like initially betting on racing or sports. So, uh, so yeah, I don't think that there, would, there was going to be the displacement that they tried to claim that there would be uh, to, in order to make this case that we were somehow doing this for ulterior motive. And just to be 100% clear, you did, it's fair to say that you did receive an apology. Yes, an apology and a retraction via a statement in open court. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it took a long time. And uh, obviously the campaign was not just one, but the legislation had come into force by that point. But, it's, it, but it was, you know, received similar messages off the back of that Channel 4 News interview alleging that I was casino industry funded not least from some former labor mps who were very close to the betting industry so uh so it was nice to 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 draw a line under that um but yeah i mean the bookmakers resorted to very aggressive tactics and i think it's sort of it it, it's contextualized by by the general approach which was to just deny that there was a problem deny deny this isn't an issue hold the line don't give don't concede any ground um that was their approach and they didn't really deviate from that and part of that was to just try and undermine their opponents and undermine the credibility of of derek and myself and 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 shoot the messenger because they didn't want to engage with the arguments they just refused to accept that there was any problem with these machines and uh and because of that because of their uh, their their tactics because of their their overarching strategy crisis management whatever you want to call it the belligerents actually cost them more in the end because if if they'd voluntarily offered to reduce the the maximum stakes to twenty pounds then I think that it would have been very difficult for us to get two pounds from that point because look it wouldn't have impacted them that much people would still have been able to play roulette sixty pounds a minute. Uh, but it would have shown government and the public and you know that they were listening to the concerns and that they that that was a, a more reasonable level and they could make that argument from a position of what was comparative strength at that point and uh and, and got on the front foot and i think if they'd done that in 2014 or 2015 then fixed odds betting terminals would probably still be at 20 pound today but uh, in the in the long run that belligerence and that uh, refusal to accept that there was a problem uh, actually cost them. Do you think there was an arrogance there that that they felt as though this was something that they could just swat aside? I think they they underestimated us, um, if I may say so. Underestimated <laughs> uh, how committed and dedicated we were to it, and um, how like, the tenacity of the people. Uh, that were involved and um, we were just I think we were, we were always innovating and finding new ways to 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 get at them and and put them under pressure and constantly working all the time it wasn't a nine to five it was in my life and uh, I think that's why people who are affected by particular issues become you know reasonably good campaigners is because they, they it matters to them a lot and uh uh, and that, that was what set us apart, really, from if they had a high turnover of staff, even in their trade bodies. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they were operating a very analogue crisis management approach as well, just on a kind of, you know, on a professional level. I don't think that they were 
adept enough uh, to handle us. I think that their their approach to public affairs and lobbying might have worked in the 90s uh, or in the early 2000s when you could just try to control, not control, but, you know, have influence over certain sections of the media, the business section. And, you know, you might meet MPs for a breakfast meeting and, and that would be lobbying and that would be how you would go about it. But things have changed a lot now with, with uh, the ability of stories that are published online to go viral, to have a massive reach. It's not just about being read once in a newspaper. It can be read again and again and again. And, you know, that that once that story's out there, it doesn't go away. It's a reference point and it can be used by MPs and referenced constantly. And, you know, I just think we just live in such a different world now where the public are more able to see through spin. And if you, I think this is a lesson for all corporations and all businesses who operate in this way is if you don't come to the table with meaningful concessions and don't actually accept that there's a problem, which is what the bookies didn't want to do, then, you know, you obviously you can't work constructively on the solutions. And if you're not seen to be doing that, then people's patience will run out very quickly. And that's what happened. People thought that, you know, why is this, it became in the end, it was like, how has this not happened already? How has this not been reduced to two pound already? It became an inevitability, you know, and uh, and the bookies, yes, I think you're right. They were very arrogant in the beginning. They thought once they've got the machines, they would they would have them forever. And, uh, uh, and you know, they, they, they didn't anticipate that they would ever come under any any kind of pressure. But the, the context moves all the time in politics and in, in the communications and everything. And you've just got to, and I just don't think that their, their approach uh, was was particularly in date. I don't doubt for a second that you're a highly motivated person, um, having looked at, at your work online and speaking to you off air and, and on the podcast as well. I'm hugely impressed by you. Um, but the fact that you went through what you did, that, that you suffered a crippling gambling addiction, and that's the only way that it can be described, uh, at that particular, against that particular uh, vice, that meant that you were hyper motivated, and and I don't think anything was really going to stop you. But I do have to ask you that you reference social media, and it can be a great thing, uh, and obviously stories can become much more widespread, and in a way that's a problem for for the print media because essentially a paper is yesterday's news today uh, whereas you go online and you read the on online version of the guardian or the times or the daily mail or whatever it is that, that you read and you have the up-to-date story um, but also on social media there is then the pressure that could be applied to you was there ever a point in this journey where you felt i've had enough of this I've I've had like uh, this is this is too much. Was there ever a point where the spin, the hyperbole, the lies that were being said about you? Because some people, you know, not not just the industry itself. There are then others who will like trolls who will who will have a go at you <clears throat> and say that your motivation is wrong. Was there ever a point where you thought this isn't for me? I can't keep doing this. No, uh, uh, I, 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 it never, it never got 
but it would never have got bad enough for me to to not want to do it anymore um but yes it was quite stressful uh it does does put you under a lot of pressure and and uh i i just feel like um yeah yeah when you talk about trolls you know i don't know who was behind these accounts or and they kept popping up again and again and you would block them and they would come back and uh all saying the same thing or saying spreading this lie that i was in the pocket of the casino industry or whatever and uh yeah i mean it's uh it was nice to get that resolution from from the lawsuit with the bookmakers and you know i yeah, I, I think it's it's inevitable with with social issue campaigners, but I I had quite a significant support base, and lots of people were wanting me to 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 carry on and to make sure it happened, and and I had you know lots of people on I could see people on Twitter were very, obviously very supportive as well, so you get that side of it too, and and you know. I think that's a. I think when when you're trying to campaign for something that's significant and it's going to impact on a, a particular sector in a, in a in a commercial level, you've just got to be braced brace yourself really for that kind of scrutiny and 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 and, and anything really that might come your way. But it's so worth it when you get the result you want. Everything becomes. Yeah, you you, you think oh, cause I remember the day when I when it, when I found out and uh, and it was announced and uh, i don't think i've ever experienced anything like it it was it was absolutely fantastic and uh, and you know I'm, I'm doing it for for people like me for people who i'm you know i can relate to people who got addicted to those machines and i know what it's like and then the stories i've heard and the people i've met it it's it's harrowing it's it, you know i was lucky really because i was I was only young, and I and I had time to, to 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 turn it around. But lots of people aren't don't have that luxury, you know. It's uh, they've built a life for themselves, they've built themselves up, and then and then everything comes crashing down, and it's so difficult to recover from that. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I was doing it for them. Kevin, Vanessa, and I, when we talked about this on the podcast, when the news was announced that the the two pound stake limit was was going to be put in place, I think. If I remember correctly, I described them as a plague, and Kevin and Vanessa were were very very critical of them as well. But I, I do think that there's a, a certain sense of of real satisfaction for everyone who's listening, but most of all for you, because this is something that ruined your life. It is something that very nearly took your life, and because you did that interview with Channel Four and then met Derek, you were then put in a position where you could fight them. And it's there are other people as well, but it is your campaign, you and Derek, with the CFG campaign for fair gambling, and are responsible for the, the £2 maximum stake. That has to be a real sense of satisfaction. I mean, I, I have a smile on my face just thinking about it, that this is something that, that did almost irreparable harm to you. And it could have caused devastation to the ones you love, because if you hadn't made that call, God forbid, if you, if you had done it, the world is a different place and your family and your loved ones are never the same. Mm. And there are always, for anybody who is in any way feeling low, there are always people 
you are loved. There are always people who, who care about you. But the fact that you came back from the brink, that you got treatment, and then that you were able to tackle them and get the better of them, I think is, is quite a remarkable story. Oh, well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I, I'd say to anyone listening who, you know, knows someone that might have a problem or if you have any any difficulty in life, you know, please don't give up and, and, and you can get through it. And in my case, and I accept that, it's a very unusual set of circumstances and, you know, I'm very grateful for where I've ended up. Um, you know, I turned what was a negative into a positive and, and I think you can... You know, there's always scope to try and do that, and as you say, you're right. If, if I'd never been addicted to gambling anyway, I would I would never be doing what I'm doing. I'd never be talking to you now, and uh, that yeah, you never know how things are going to to turn around. And um, I just I just think that what we've done has already started to reverberate across, particularly the remote sector. And I think the remote sector, the online gambling, are um, starting to wake up to the fact that they can't do what the Association of British Bookmakers did and deny that there's a problem. They have to accept that there is a problem, that too much of their money is coming from people with gambling problems. I put it at about 60%. If I look at the figures from the PwC report for GamblerWare, uh, that's far too high. And that means that the business model is actually built on people with gambling problems. It's not a byproduct. It's not unfortunate. It's not incidental. It's that that is the business model. And if that's the business model, it's the business model for everyone. So none of them can do anything unilaterally to reduce harm because they'll lose market share. So what they have to do now, and I think that they're waking up to this, and this is why they're going to put together this new trade body, is they have to, you might think paradoxically, lobby for more regulations lobby for a level playing field that ensures that that proportion of revenue they're getting from people who are addicted comes down significantly. And yes, it might hurt them in the short term. It might hurt them commercially in the short term. But reducing the stake to £20 might have hurt the bookies in the short term, but they might still have those machines at £20 today. If the remote sector wants to be around in five to ten years and it wants to keep the you know, ensure that the voices in favour of prohibition don't grow louder and louder, then it does have to accept that there's a problem that needs to be solved and it needs to come to the table with meaningful solution. And I think that there's so much wrong with the remote sector, not least the fact that you can't get your money on if you know you have some idea of what you're doing. I mean, that is, for me, that is one of the... Uh, that That is... Uh, really a con because what they're saying to people when they advertise these companies is come and have a bet with us but they're not really offering you a chance to gamble they're offering you a chance to give for them to you to give them money that's not if you if if they stop you winning or they stop you getting your money on because they think you might win on racing or sports and they only offer casino content at unlimited stakes then that's that they're not they're not bookmakers then that yeah. is just, uh, there is no possible way anyone can win. So all of these things really need to be addressed. And, you know, the Gambling Commission has only been regulating online gambling since 2014. And they acknowledge that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I think 
the proportion of revenue, gross yield that's coming from people with gambling problems and the fact that you can't get your money on uh, if you know you want to bet on racing or sports and you have a clue about it. Uh, those two things are, are the priority. The online casino industry is something that I'm very uncomfortable with. There's a difference between playing online poker, which I used to commentate on on poker for, for a good number of years and thoroughly enjoyed it and met the big names and it was a great buzz to, to do all of that. And I played online poker from a recreational standpoint, but you can read strategy books. Like my mother is a, is a fantastic bridge player and um, she she taught bridge before she she uh, got cancer. Thank God she's she's doing very well um, and and did that very successfully. But she she's a very, very uh, intelligent, very talented uh, bridge player. And it's a game that gives her, she, she's still playing it and she gets a great buzz from it. I never got into bridge, but I did get into poker and, and particularly Texas Hold'em. And the, the thing about it is that you can always try to better yourself. You can read Doyle Brunson's Super System 2. You can read uh, all kinds of different strategy books. And there's very, there's a, an FBI uh, analyst who did a book with Phil Hellmuth on tells uh, and, and, and facial tells playing live poker on and it, there's so many different dynamics to it, betting patterns. It's it's fascinating, and, and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And just through work and over time, I I gradually stopped playing and and don't now uh, really. But I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. But one of the things I liked about it was because there is strategy. Yes, there's there is a huge element of luck. You you can't say that there isn't. But if you are a good player, a very good player, then you can win. That is not the case with casino games. And uh, there was a, a very high-profile instance of Victoria Corrin, who hosts the show Only Connect. She was a professional poker player. She was connected to a... She had a contract with a big site. They decided to go down the the gaming industry. I and, remember, yeah, spin and, spin and win, wasn't it, or something? And it remember that, yeah. Yeah, and she resigned. She she resigned her sponsorship uh, from them and wrote about why, uh, that she, she wasn't comfortable about it and, and really emphasized the fact that, look, not everybody who plays poker is going to win. And poker is something that you can become addicted to as well. And, and that's where the phrase tilt comes from. And just because it's a game that can be played by people who, who are exceptionally good at it, if you ever watch the film Molly's Game, there's a great scene where a, a, a guy has a, a strategy and he plays very well and he loses one hand and just spirals, spirals out of control. That can happen in poker, but it is a game you can win. It is a game that if you work hard at, you can win. Yeah, I've, I've got no, personally, I've got no problem with, with gambling at all. And I mean, I should have said that probably earlier in the interview. No, no, that, that's, I, that's fine. I, and, I, and, and I, I, I will... We're, we're, not, we're not anti-gambling. And, yeah, and, and, and listen, uh, I, I know that because yeah. to be honest about it, I wouldn't have had you on if you were <laughs> to be totally honest about it. Uh, but but, yeah, I, but I, yeah, I do yeah. want to talk to you about that just be, before we wrap up. But um, the problem that I have then with, with casino games is that you are, you know, there is the old adage, the house always wins. And, and that's what you're, you're playing against. And I tweeted about it one night um, somebody had asked me, I said that I'm very uncomfortable with uh, online casino games, and a regular lis- listener to the podcast tweeted back fairly quickly saying, hey, why are you having a go at, um, at casino games? I play them recreationally, and I enjoy them, and I- I'm not out of control. It's something that I like to do. 
And I hadn't thought of it that way, to be completely honest about it. And he made a very good point. And I said, you know what? You're, you're right. Uh, and, and there are. There are lots of people who, who will thoroughly enjoy gaming um, to a certain extent. But he has control of what he's doing. Uh, there was a girl on to me as well saying that, that she plays with her, her boyfriend every now and again. They, there's a casino yeah. game that they play online uh, together and they, they thoroughly enjoy it and, and they have a bit of fun. And that's fine. I'm delighted for them. That, that's fantastic. But they're in control. There are, unfortunately, people who aren't. And that was, was one of the things I wanted to bring it around to. The online sector and, and online casinos are ultimately going to be the next target. And if you think about how easy it is to to download an app, to play on your on your laptop, if you're doing it recreationally, I'd have absolutely no problem with that. But doesn't that then mean, Matt, that similar to what's happened with FobTees, that there needs to be a staking system in place? Because if you're in the wrong mindset, if you have an addictive personality, you can, and, and you mentioned a, a figure there earlier on, which really startled me. I think it was 60%. Uh, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that for us, again, I'd appreciate it. Because if you are in a vulnerable place, that could spiral very, very quickly. In the same way that it could if you go into a pub and you drink alcohol or you become addicted to painkillers or whatever. There is always a risk in life. But there are rules that are put in place you can't get whatever pills you want from a chemist you know you have to have a prescription and even then they're going to ring the doctor uh the bartender isn't going to serve you if he or she thinks that you're you're um after having a little bit too much but if you're sitting there on your own and you may i, I think one of the points that you made in uh in one of the pieces in the guardian or the, the financial times was that Really, roulette only has a place in casinos. The reason being that there are staff there. There are staff there who can who can look at you. There's there's uh, a croupier. There's security. Some if if you are out of control, somebody you would like to think would step in. But if you've just got a laptop, uh, a MacBook, or a, a phone in your hand, who is stopping you? And yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, uh, look. I'm not a prohibitionist at all, and uh, this is, when, I, when I said that about roulette only belongs in casinos, it's because if you are going to allow roulette, which I believe you should, then it should be in the most highly regulated gambling environment. That's the place for it. It's the um, the, the the issue with at the you mentioned the people that, that bet rec, bet rec, recreationally on online casino games. I mean, that, obviously there are people that do that, and I completely accept that, but. The, if there was a system of affordability checks, they wouldn't be impacted. The recreational players wouldn't be impacted. If there's a proper system of when you deposit money, there has to be a, or a significant amount of money. There has to be a, a rigorous affordability check. You know, that's only going to impact the people that can't afford to deposit what they're putting into these accounts and uh, betting money they can't afford to lose. So, there are things that you can do that don't impact the recreational player. Now, actually, one of the things about the fixed odds betting terminals was the more you gambled per spin, the more likely you were to be uh, a problem gambler or, or an at-risk gambler, someone experiencing problem. So you could predict it almost by the stake. Now, you're right about 
uh, you're right about uh, no stake limits online. Now, I think if the 2005 Gambling Act was written today, it would not say slot machines, category B3, capped at £2 a spin. It would say capped at £2 a spin. And that content could either be on a machine, it could be online. There does need to be some kind of... Uh, parity between what's online and what what's on machines i think that's that's completely reasonable and at the moment you know you can bet unlimited amount on slots online some people have bet thousands of pounds a spin on slots i mean you can't justify that as an industry who is who is your market here for the, who who can afford to be doing that really you know it's uh, but that's why you know if you do the affordability checks people can afford it they're not gambling more than they can afford to lose then, then, you know, they, that's less of an issue. But the industry, the remote industry, really has to... I think they've been... I hope that they've been woken up by our campaign and, you know, hope for their sake as well, you know, because I think they really have to come to the table with, with solutions and they have to do it quickly because there's a, now a, a, quite a substantial group of MPs in Parliament and as well as the Labour Party... Uh, and even the Gambling Commission, uh, as a result of our campaign, who are all hungry for more reform and can all see that the, you know, the next battleground is, is online. And, you know, really everything, everyone is orientated towards or motivates everyone is to, to get a better deal for consumers, really. That's basically it. It's protecting the consumer and getting a better deal for the consumer. And the gambling companies, the operators have... Uh, uh, have managed to get away with uh, quite a lot to date. And I don't know if you saw uh, GVC appear GVC's appearance in Nevada and they picked them up on uh, some of the uh, operations that they were, were doing in Turkey where they were masking payments uh, a while ago. And this is obviously uh, something that they were doing a few years ago and I think things have moved on since then. Hold here. on, can, can you elaborate oh, on that, please? They were masking masking payments yeah. through a foreign so, country. So what they were doing? So in Turkey, it's uh, it's it's illegal to to gamble online, and the banks, if they see a gambling transaction, they'll take action. They'll report it and they will block it or whatever. So they were using a payment processor to access the market in Turkey that masked the transactions so they didn't look like gambling transactions when they appeared on people's bank statements so something and, something like skrill or or, or uh, an alternative to that yeah I, I can't remember exactly what it was called um but it came quite a uh, a touchy issue for the nevada gaming board where gvc's trying to get licensed over in the states and uh uh, and as a result, I think, of that, they gave them a two-year conditional license. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because these operators have been growing up in the last decade, decade and a half. They're very, very immature companies, and they are going to have to get to grips with, uh, if they, particularly if they want to get licensed in the States, they're going to have to up their game, and they're going to have to hold themselves to higher standards and I think that they are aware now that the UK context is very volatile. And if they don't 
come to the table with solutions and concessions uh, in the short term, then the pressure is just going to grow. There is a lot, from my own experience in in the industry, there is a lot of checks and balances and uh, a lot of things that you have to do right. And the gold rush in America is is going to be a fascinating one. And and that's a podcast that I want to, to do as well, because maybe it's not going to be quite the gold rush that, that certain people thought. But there's a double standard in, in betting in that when a betting company online says, oh, we're protecting the privacy of our customer if they just keep depositing and are pouring money into a, a casino game or casino games, that same company, if we've had a win on the horses... God, I'm really sounding American today. What is going? I did some, <laughs> yeah, I did, I did some voiceover work for an American company early, earlier on, and now I've become a, I'm, I'm like one of those tossers who goes to America for a week and then comes back like, oh man, it's amazing. Oh, I love it. <laughs> what has happened to me? Uh, but that same betting company could then say, if if you've won a bet and you go to a draw, they want your your license, they want your your passport, they want, they may very well ask for your bank statements. Uh, because they want to then prove that the money is yours. But they're not asking you that question when you're depositing. And, no, exactly. And, it, and it's a total double standard. And, and Neil Channing, and, and as I said, we've, we've talked about this several times in the podcast, Neil Channing, who is definitely one of the most respected betters in the game, um, he highlighted IE Snare, which is the, the software that gets installed on your computer where betting companies can then observe what it is you're doing. So if you are, for example, Arbing, if you're on Betfair and you're on their betting site and you're taking 22s and then laying that off on the exchange, they can they can see what you're doing. They can also, by your IP address, gather how good you are. And, yeah. and this whole thing raises so many ethical questions. And now really we know why. They were getting yeah. it so easy with Fopties. They've been getting it so easy with online casinos that why would you? Because because the thing for me with, with betting is I remember the Channel 4 racing coverage and Big Macs down in, in the betting jungle and there's thousands of people in, in the betting ring at a major festival and he's talking about how it's the punter versus the bookmakers and the punters after we've won the back in front won the supreme novices hurdle and he was the favorite and the punters are, are in front now maybe you didn't back back in front but it's a nice way of putting it that you know the favorites won therefore punter versus bookmaker and that's what it's always been us versus them you know how do we mm. get one over and that, and that's why it's funny when neil channing tells stories about going into a shop and having a baseball cap on trying to get a bet on or sending his runners around london to try and, and try and get bets on where he, where he knows full well he's restricted and can't get a bet on otherwise there are funny anecdotes like that we we love the the barney curley stories about landing gambles because you're getting one over on the old enemy that's how they were referred to bookmakers are the old enemy and and it's us versus them only in recent years we get constant complaints to at final furlan pod by direct message to my own email to the, the facebook site from people saying that you know regular listeners who love this game they love horse racing and maybe they're just doing lucky 15s. Maybe it's just 20 quid on, on a Saturday, 100 quid, whatever it is. And they're being restricted. They're being told, no, we don't want your business anymore. But they're not going to be restricted from playing a casino game. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing. I, I think going, if you, uh, the internet is, is what's revolutionized all this because 
it, it might have been the case in the 80s or the 90s that if you go into a bookmaker and you, you start winning, they might assign you a, what they call a nom de plume, where they just uh, say if you're going in wearing a baseball cap, they might just call you baseball cap or something. And they'll say, if baseball cap comes in, don't don't serve him, don't tell him that he's restricted or starting price only or whatever. That would have been completely legitimate if they want to do that. If they want to do that, if they want to do it based on, you know, who's coming into the shop and they, they can choose that. I think that that's sort of legitimate. But the problem with the internet is it's now being done on an industrial scale with algorithms. And therefore, it you know, everyone's becoming affected because everyone's being identified, everyone's identified already. And... You know, I just I, I did speak to someone who worked at one of the major operators and they said that they've got this software that they can predict with pinpoint accuracy after a month how much you will cost or be worth to the operator over the period of a year. And if you're not going to be a profitable customer, they'll restrict your account. And, you know, this is not this is completely uh, in contra- contradicts the, the kind of spirit of bookmaking, which I think is what you're talking about. Yeah. Which it is supposed to be punter versus bookmaker, and it's supposed to be a fair fight. That's the crucial thing. Because if it's just punter versus bookmaker, you think, well, okay, then they are going to use everything at their disposal to try and rig the game. But the game shouldn't be rigged because to have a betting license is a, it's a privilege. It's not a right. And with that privilege should come attached with it responsibilities that you play this game fair. This has got to be fair. Uh, and that's what's happened. That's what's gone wrong. And uh, uh, and that's why we call the campaign for fairer gambling. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> and a very apt name as well. And, and the other thing as well is that when it was Cheltenham Festivals or Royal Ascots from years ago, and you would have a headline from various different bookmakers, PR reps in The Guardian and in The Times, and they're saying, oh, we've been pummeled. Oh, the, the, the punters have destroyed us. The punters have, have, have cleaned us out. You know, it's going to take us a long time to recover from this. Uh, we, we couldn't believe the, the gamble that was on this horse or you know, a, a fancy, all the favourites won. And you'd read that and go, maybe you weren't part of it, but you think, yeah, you know, like punters have done well. This is great. And now you mm. read that and you're just sceptical straight away because you're like, yeah. well, really? How much? Could, because I can't bet with you. So how many others can't? You know, I, I know um, very, very savvy bettors over in, in the UK and, and here in Ireland, and they have to ring up friends to, to go and place the bet for them. And, and that's the situation that you're in. And I would have thought, and it would have been the case, that if you have a line into someone who is successful, you know, somebody who is a winning better, or if, or if someone who has information that they get from a yard, which can sometimes be the worst thing that you get because just because you think your horse is going to win doesn't necessarily mean that it is. But isn't that info useful to you? That you can then use that? I had a story the other day with Dennis, he was tweeting publicly about this, that he asked for a bet on a horse at 66 to 1 and he was told, no, we can give you 50s. To which he said, all right, I'll take the 50s. And then they said, no, uh, we, we can give you 25s and they restricted the amount of money they were taking as well. You're advertising a price. Come on. Yeah. They don't even they don't want to be bookmakers though because a, a real bookmaker would take that money. An on-course bookmaker would take the money and then if they needed to they lay it off. Yeah. But they don't want to they don't want to they don't want to do that for some reason. They just want the they want to control the return and they want it to be a fixed return even through betting and 
they do that by yeah they do that by restricting accounts and you make a very good point about the fact that betfair and betdac are there if you want to you can take the bet from dennis he's on at 66s you lay off your liability and now you know that someone who's quite savvy has had this bet the horse won by the way he ended up winning a 10 to 1 so he was really getting but the price was being advertised at 66s he wasn't doing anything wrong and that's the thing you're made to feel like you're doing something wrong then you know it's mm. it's hard enough to make a profit and and the, the for for most of us certainly for me it's about the love of racing i mean i, I just yeah. i love the game and I, I feel really privileged to get to talk about something that I love. And, and that's why I, I love to talk about so many different aspects of the industry as well. And this is a very important conversation to have. And I'm very, very glad we're having it. And I hope our listeners are enjoying it. It needs to be a fair playing field. You talked about the fact that you are not anti-gambling, which obviously uh, I would have ended this conversation very quickly if you were. For some people, having a bet isn't important. Some people just want to go to the races and, and, and watch the horses uh, and, and watch the jockeys, and that's fine. But betting is a huge part of the sport, and uh, and long may that continue. Is there in any way in, in the back of your mind, while what you have done is incredibly important and is a great service to the United Kingdom, Again, we don't have FOPTIs in Ireland, so I, I can't say you've done a great service for the, the nation of Ireland, but you've done a great service <laughs> for the United Kingdom by, by putting those restrictions in. Is there possibly an unintended consequence of pressure being put on gambling as a whole in general? Do you think that that is something that, that might be looked at? I don't think so. I gen- no, I don't think so. Excellent. I think, but I think that there's, I think that there is, um, I mean, we, we were very specific about, you know, this being about one product. And uh, and uh, you know there are obviously other issues with the gambling industry, and I think the, those issues are primarily affecting the consumer. Yeah, we just want to get a better deal from the consumer, really, and and ensure that uh, some of these problems in the industry, where it's not fair, it's not a fair fight between punter and bookmaker, are uh, are ironed out. Uh, but I don't think that it threatens gambling at all, as as a whole at all. I don't think there are any kind of people that want to prohibit gambling who have any particular sway on the public policy debate. I think that there is some uh, concerns about uh, online gambling and particularly online casino gambling. And I, I find it personally difficult to to justify what the social good of that is. Uh, look, people enjoy it. People enjoy it. That's great. I think that they should uh, there should be affordability checks and they should be applied across the industry. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that there is much more to be said for, for gambling where it is actually possible to win in the long term. Mm. And, you know, it's a, it's a fair fight, whether it's player versus player poker or whether it's what should be punter versus bookmaker. Yeah, if you've got somebody like Michael Cox, who's got a, an in-depth knowledge of, of tactics and is able to talk to you about how he feels a football game is going to go or... Mike Carlson or Todd Furman on the NFL and the knowledge that, that they possess and they can give you their view. They're not always going to be right, but they have an edge because of the work they do. They have an edge because of the insight they have. And that's then the same for for Kevin Blake. It's the same for Declan Maher, who's on the podcast with us tomorrow, uh, for Rory DeLarge, um, for Simon Rowlands, who, who mentioned yesterday about the fact that, that he is, there's a number of firms that he's restricted by because he's good at what he does. Uh, and, yeah. and so he ends up in, in, in that position. And that's just not fair. You could argue that 
uh, a bookmaker will say, well, I mean, look, we can't get taken to the cleaners by these guys. But it's not like they're taking seven-figure sums each year. You know, they're not wiping a bookmaker out. They're just, they're, they're winning. They will lose and they will win. That's the battle. Yeah, That's what but, it was. But the thing, the thing is, Emmett, right, they, they say we can't get... We can't get wiped out. We can't get like, lose seven-figure sums and whatever. No one's forcing them to be bookmakers. If they can't do it, they can't do the job of being bookmakers. Then don't have a betting license and don't be an operator, right? It, it, that that is that is such a a poor reason to not uphold your obligations and what should be your responsibilities as a bookmaker to take bets. And I, I, I have no sympathy at all for that line of argument. And I know that they do say it, and I think that that's it's pathetic. Um, as I said before, if it comes to it, take the bet and lay it off. Uh, I just, I just can't get my head around why they, they want, they want all the benefits of being bookmakers without any of the risk. Uh, and I think that that's they're not the only sector to to be in that position. Uh, everyone would like to be in that position, but we license and regulate gambling for a reason. So there's no excuse. That is an excellent point. Wouldn't it be great to have been a bondholder, lose the money, and then have the governments pay you out? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> you took a gamble. You know, it's the same thing as backing a racehorse and then walking out and seeing uh, somebody in the street and going, hey, give me back my 20 quid. I was told that was going to win. It doesn't work that way at all. Um, how affronted were you when two major bookmakers, after the, the ruling was made, you've won, the, the £2 stake is being implemented, two major bookmakers tried to then circumvent that by introducing different roulette-style games. Similar, but different. Did that, did that just infuriate you? I just thought it was totally brainless, to be honest. I mean, they, they, um, we've got such a strong network of politicians, and members of parliament in the House of Lords, uh, who, were, who were poised to push back on that. And uh, the Gambling Commission you know, has reconciled itself to two pound stake um and obviously they were very unimpressed with this and i just think they don't, they're not doing themselves any favors in terms of a long-term fight by trying to circumvent rules in this way and uh, uh you know the long-term fight is going to be predominantly online and I, I just think that they need to do the long difficult job now of repairing their trust with the public and repairing their reputations and uh, that was certainly not the way they were going to do it so I just thought as I say I thought it was completely mindless it was such a strange strange thing to do um, and, and for two companies that are very pure savvy uh, I thought it was a really really odd thing to do um, as, as we come to the end of this the, uh, the the reaction that you had to the news that horse racing which has a levy from the government um that has fallen by 17 million pounds and it's being blamed by fobtees now the just in case you didn't hear it on the podcast the point that i made when the ruling had come through that the the two pound stake was there and, and kevin talked about um that this may very well affect a levy i said well they shouldn't be relying on it because it's not that that money is not money that is being bet on horse racing. It's been bet on something that is highly addictive. One of the things we didn't mention is we've all seen the viral videos of people going ballistic and beating the crap out of those machines. 
uh, like completely losing their minds because of the frame of mind that you can be put in by, by playing those. Um, mm. and, and there is now this, this spin story about the fact that £17 million pounds, uh, has, has fallen and this is due to the government's crackdown on, on FOBTs. You've done something right and then there's a story that is being put out that is is negative about racing because of of what you've done. Um, I think you've done a great thing. The vast majority of people think you've done a great thing, and I would like to think that the leaders in British racing are smart enough to understand that you cannot rely on something that is a cancer in in those betting shops and take that money because that's that is that is just dirty money. Yeah, and what I'd say as well, Emmett, is, uh, look, the, the the machines weren't driving the footfall. The, the people who play should get addicted to the machines were, were losing all their money on the machines. They might have bet on a race every now and again, but the, the real issue was the substitution from over the counter onto the machines. And what we want to do is keep people over the counter because it's safer, because it's different, completely different style of gambling. And I think there's been a lost generation of people who you know have attended betting shops and got into would have got into racing but haven't because they've been sucked onto these machines and that's a massive long-term problem for racing that can't be solved with short-term solutions like we'll keep the stakes at 100 pounds because it's going to eat away at any future kind of customer base and I think that what will happen now is there's, I think it's already happening, is that people will go back to over the counter. New customers who come into the shops will start betting over the counter and they won't get substituted onto the machines. And if they do, they're not going to lose all their money on the machines. Uh, and, that, and that's the, that's what we want. We want betting shops to, to go back to how they were before fixed odds betting terminals, which was taking bets over the counter. Punter versus bookmaker. That's what it was always about. And and as you say, whether your bet's a lucky 15, regular listeners to the show will, will know that I'm, I'm quite fond of the lucky 15 and the, and the lucky 31. But whether it's that or, or if you just want to place a, a bet on horse racing, at the very least, you can look at the form and you can decipher that information and interpret it in whatever way that you want to reach a conclusion on the bet that you're going to place. Hitting a button on a machine that gives you a, an adrenaline rush is not the same thing. And and I hadn't even thought of the fact. I, I For some reason, it just appeared as though it was two completely different customer bases. It didn't even occur to me that people who were betting on racing or betting on football or greyhounds or rugby were being lured to these machines and that that was now becoming the focus. And that's what happened to you. You were doing football bets and you became mm-hmm. intrigued by these machines and it, and it led to where you are and, and led to what, what happened to you. I, I think you've done incredible work. I, I really do, Matt. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You were oh, saying- Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, no, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we, we have, we've covered a lot of ground, yeah. but I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I hope that the people listening have as well. Just for anyone who is feeling as though they are, because no matter what you gamble on, you can become addicted you can spiral. It doesn't have to be FOBTs. It doesn't have to be um, online casino games. It, it can be any form of it. But the same goes for painkillers, for for alcohol. For anybody that, that is feeling as though that they are starting to spiral or that they are losing control and they can't talk about it, what advice would you give? 
that uh, how they feel. If they feel like they're losing control, um, then they, they, obviously that's not that's not them. That, that they're not they're not in uh, they're not well, and you need to go to to a doctor and therapy, or maybe there's medication that can help. Uh, but the crucial thing is when you're through it, uh, you feel so much better. And, you know, your mental state is so much better and you're enjoying life again. You're enjoying things that other people are enjoying. And you can't put a price on that, really. And I, um, and you can get through it. It can be done. It's possible. And, and I think it's so important that, you, obviously, you make the first step. When you completed your rehabilitation was therapy something that that you continued and you mentioned medication i know we spoke about it briefly off air like that has been they've been important factors for you but is do you continue therapy or have you now just walked away from it i don't do therapy i I do take uh, meds uh i think the 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 mental health impact of the addiction actually lasted longer than the financial impact, which I think is not really talked about a lot, um, even I, even in recovery, you know, it, it um, I still kind of felt very low and very uh, anxious at times. So the medication helps with that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I did do therapy for a period and like a substantial period, and that was also very helpful. But some things, I think, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any shame. And if you've got like a chemical imbalance in your brain, and you know, if it was if you were ill. Well, I'm well in any other respect. You would you would get treatment for it. So, mental health should be no different. It was Mental Health Week last week, and a lot of people were were sharing those stories. And I think that that's another great thing about social media is the fact that that in the '90s, um, and for that matter, decades previous to that, if you felt lost or if you felt really low it's very easy to get trapped in your own mind and think well nobody else must think like this you know there's something wrong with me that you know there's something wrong with me and and not anybody else and then you realize that actually no this is a widespread thing and and that everybody Mm. and so we're all unique we're all different there's a a reason we all have individual fingerprints all different retinas but our our minds work in, in different ways too we're all suffering our private battles i've joked about the the pain that i'm in on the podcast for as as much as i can because it's a good way of handling it but um you were talking about the fact that that you have to take antidepressants so do i and there's a reason for that it's that the body is in so much pain it puts a huge mental strain on you and if i didn't have what i have to take then i probably would crack up bizarrely i met a a farrier friend of mine yesterday i ended up chatting to him for over an hour and he has severe back pain and he was saying to me that he's also on antidepressants it's a very very different instance for you and a very very different reason as to why you are there but i admire your courage i admire your bravery to speak so eloquently about your own battle i seriously admire the fact that you then went full on uh, and took on a gigantic industry and um, and won a battle against something that I, I don't think should even exist. As I said, in Ireland, they weren't allowed. They, they have not been, there has been campaigns for them. They have not been allowed in Ireland. And uh, hopefully the Irish government, particularly having seen what's happened in the UK, will, will maintain that policy. I like to Definitely. bet. I, I like to bet. And I don't think any of us should feel... I was asked to, to appear on a, a BBC show, uh, which the, the topic was the ethics of gambling. 
and um to be honest about it, I, I can't travel. Uh, my, my back is in, in such a state that I, I just couldn't go. But I, I was well up for doing it and, and very interested in having that conversation because I would hate the idea that there is some... Because you remember in the 90s, there used to be... Well, you were slightly younger than me. Uh, but you remember that there, there was like a shame of bookmakers. You know, like the, the smoking yeah. ban. The smoking ban wasn't in place. You go into a bookmaker, you'd come out of it, you'd, you'd be reeking of, of the smoke that was in there, and, and it was almost like that. You know, it's like a hidden thing. Like there's some kind of, it, it's a taboo subject, or it's it's a some kind of shameful thing. It's not. It's a great no. sport. It can be great fun. Like the fun that you have when you go racing. We have great fun talking about it. We have access to fantastic punters and fantastic analysts of the game which is great i think that betting is is something that in one way or another we have done for generations you know long before even bookmakers came along it's been there and i think it's an important aspect of of life as well that you can go and have a bet on who you think is going to win best picture at the oscars you can have a bet on 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 your career and and on politics as well and who you think is going to uh, win the next general election it it is interesting to put your money where your mouth is some people can spiral and i understand that but it was these machines in particular that targeted the most vulnerable in our society and it got hold of you a young person with your whole life in front of you and you almost lost it because of it and i'm i'm so so glad that um your parents got to you in time that you handled things the way that you did and you were doing great and and i admire facing the adversity that you faced as well and the amount of negative comments online because particularly having gone through what you'd gone through it would have been really really simple to to pack in the tell and just go nah screw this but but you kept up the good fight and that's that's something you should be immensely proud of. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. No, I'm, I'm glad we did. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, as I, as I mentioned before, I think it, it will catalyze a culture change in the industry as well. And some of the, some of the things that, that are causing problems for for individuals and punters, hopefully, we'll see some some progress there as well. And and uh, we can have a an industry, a gambling industry in, in Britain that we can actually be proud of. As long as it comes back to us versus them, I think that's what we, yeah. that's what we want. You know, that's what it is. It is the battle against the old enemy. Barry's Bismarck, that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's just that kind of yeah. stuff is, is, is what makes it. And we've lost that way and it would be nice to get back to it. I was kind of hoping you'd be an Alistair Campbell type with a F-bomb being dropped in left, right, and center, and kind of <laughs> the thick of it Malcolm Tucker style, but uh, much more, and, and I'm a big fan of Alistair Campbell's, by the way, but uh, uh, <laughs> much more eloquent than that. Matt, it, is, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being so open with us, and thank you so much for giving us your time. Matt Zarb, cousin, wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been great. Cheers. And we are back with more on the Final Furlong podcast very, very soon. Thank you very much for listening to this special edition of the show. Hope you enjoyed it. God bless. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.